Broadcasting live from New York, this is The Monstrous Feminine, a podcast where horrible humans talk about horror. My name is Zeba, and I'm joined by my mommy Watas, Mila, and Louisa. And this is our last episode covering Mermaids. We are talking about the 2022 American psychological thriller Nanny, directed by Nikatu Jusu. Taya is unavailable this episode, but she'll be back soon. Before we get into the film, follow us on Spotify, YouTube, or the Apple Podcast app. You can find all of our links on our Instagram at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast. In this film, a young woman named Aisha starts nannying for a privileged family to save enough money to bring over her six-year-old son, who's currently in the care of her cousin back in their home country of Senegal. Her employers are irresponsible, the wife frequently and unexpectedly comes home late and forgets to pay Aisha overtime, while the husband turns a blind eye and then makes sexual advances towards her. Distressed and missing her son, Aisha begins having visions influenced by African lore. One is of Anansi, the spider-like trickster god, the other is of a Mamiwata, a mermaid-like water spirit or siren. She begins dating Malik, the doorman at her employee's residence, and her spiritual grandmother explains that these entities want for Aisha to channel her rage and resist her oppression. As Aisha's frustration at her misfortune and mistreatment grows, these dreams and hallucinations become more and more intense. And the one time I come home sick, I find you feeding my daughter food that is way too spicy for her tummy. What is even in this? What if she's allergic? Since I've started, I have been buying her food or making some of my own. Did you ever wonder how your child was eating? Are you too busy to care? Zeba, you told us about your Eartha Kit mermaid tattoo in the Lure episode, but you also mentioned that you had plans to get a Nanzi tattooed. So go into that. I mean, like a lot of... (laughs) woke parents of the 90s I had a lot of like storybooks from different cultures so like I I don't know I feel like that was like very trendy at the time and even in this movie the mom was like you can pick a storybook from whatever country you want it was very much giving that so for context I am not African I'm African-American but like I don't have you know like my family's not newly immigrated or anything like that so I feel like that's I don't know I feel like that's important to say um and I had a, a Nanzi picture book. I had a couple of Nanzi books. Honestly, for the life of me, I cannot find the edition that I had, like the particular book that I had. Like, if anybody could ever, like, listeners, if you want to go on that hunt to find this, I cannot describe the particular (laughs) illustrations. But it was like a series of stories and Anansi would get into all these like hijinks, like he would teach people lessons and like trick people and like cause mischief. And it was like a picture book series. And I'm sure there were other you know, African deities that were like sprinkled throughout. I do remember a Mama Wati story as well, where like the two of them team up for some sort of mission, but I can't remember. It wasn't like this, but they were even still like a little bit scary, right? There was like always like shape-shifting. They were like not black and white, like good guy or bad guy characters, any of these like deities. And I think that's what I liked about them is like, You can go to them for favors, I guess, but like, you're not going to get exactly what you asked for. And I think, I think that was much like a genie or whatever. Like you make your three wishes and it just like, isn't exactly how you wanted it. Like you're going to learn a lesson instead of just like getting what you wished for, which I liked about these. And I think that was very present in this movie. I appreciated it remaining true 
to that sort of like gray area of good and evil because like I don't know I think a lot of the figures in these stories are like not good guys or bad guys they just like are forces in the world like they are the things they're the change makers they are like the things that disrupt the narrative and don't let you be like stagnant anymore and obviously have like dominion over different areas all this being said like as far as my first tattoo goes where I'm like why is it a mermaid I don't know because I don't think too hard about things but this is a tattoo I've been thinking about for a long time the Anansi one because I want it to look right right like spiders are scary and I want it to look like the right amount of scary um and the right amount of <laughs> humanoid I suppose and like the right like I want it to be like how I remembered it in the picture book that I had. Your picture book is very spider-like. And when I've seen it, it's more like those kind of harsh block depictions of a spider. Yeah, this one, this one was much more realistic. Like he was a little hairy. He had a little like human face, but he was a spider still. The version that they use in this movie, I think is the most recent and the most popular version that like kids would know today, especially American kids. I know that to be certain. So like as far as the, the tattoos go and like things that are like I keep close to me, like stories I keep close to me that were like kind of spooky, scary from childhood. This definitely had a lot of them. So I really loved this movie. I literally didn't even think about how those two designs kind of go together, the mermaid and the spider, because they feel like black and like African diasporic stories. They're both tricksters um, in lore and that they're sort of like, creatures that exist between worlds and they can be your friend they don't have to be your friend they're just sort of I don't know I just love how independent that they are that they're not like angels or like ghosts or demons they just are these things that are sort of in between and I love in between creatures I think they're my favorite creatures in like all of fantasy I've always kind of thought when I read because I read a lot of like short stories like came prize for African writing does like that yearly competition for short stories and I love reading them Kind of how I discovered like Mamiwata myths and, and stuff. I don't know. I kind of like that a lot of the deities are not black and white in terms of morality. I feel like it always made more sense to me because when we conceive spirituality in like West and Christian, it's like this is right, this is wrong, this is black and white. And I'm like, but I, I've always thought, and like it's like, you know, God is different, it's other, is higher than us. But I always thought like it would make the most sense if gods and deities were petty like humans because that would reflect the world that we have and like why bad things happen it just makes more sense to me than like other ways of conceiving morality via like a structured religion i think it just always whenever i read it i'm like yeah it would make more sense if we had like obanje who like you know inhabit people and like act as like agents of chaos and and stuff and can get jealous i guess the greek gods and stuff are like that I was going to say, like, I think that's like a through line of a lot of like polytheistic religions and like myths and pantheons is like, I think that's what, what people like about those stories and why they seem to like be lasting, even though a lot of them belong to like really ancient cultures. You know, I also grew up with like Hindu myths and like comic books and things like that for my mom, like pretty closely, like those are kind of like similar, right? They have like human emotions and human reactions to things. And I think what I loved about those stories was what you're talking about, like the divine chaos. Like that made a lot of sense to me. I was like, yeah, it doesn't make sense because like nothing makes sense. People don't make sense. So why would like events in the world not be like swayed by shallow emotions or, you know, even like pettiness or rage or like the things that were internal? I liked that they were like externalized, right? Like 
a natural disaster isn't like God coming to punish you necessarily. It's that something's tumultuous in, you know, in their personal life, in their emotional world, and they're like, whatever. It's not so tied to morality. There's a great interview with Stephen Fry, who the interview was sort of baiting him about like what he would say to God if he met God. And it was like, he would question him about the objectively, like morally abject things that go on in this world if he's meant to be like omnipotent. But he talks about the same thing, like Greek gods, they had all these like human like qualities and flaws. And that's something much more, I suppose, believable. If if there are like divine forces in this world, then they're not going to be the like these purest beings that seemingly have such strict right and wrongs because look at this fucking world. It's certainly not living by any of those codes. But what you said about the ego is really interesting because like a lot of like certainly Christianity, we see how it's been wielded as a way to enforce power and morality for centuries. And I think other folklore and even folklore on the British Isles, it was all about trying to make sense of the world around you and like building narratives and stories about your people. It's sense making, not like rule ascribing. There are no rules to this. Like you have to worship this God in this way. You have to behave in this way. You can do this. or You can't do that. It's more like looking at the world and coping and even like navigating like your own inner world and your own psychological world, like externalizing those stories and those emotions. Some of them are lessons, but some of them are just stories. And I think that's great. The Monstrous Feminine is on Twitter. So please go tweet us. If you do engage with our content, you might just get a shout out in our next episode as our Witch of the Week. This episode, our Witch of the Week is Chloe Oriel, who tweeted us and said, really enjoying at the Monfem pod, love a bit of Barbara Creed, have had some really funny looks reading phallic panic on the bus though. Love that for you. It's sort of like when people read clearly erotic novels on like the tube. I think that's so funny. That's what a Kindle is great for. Nobody knows what I'm reading and nobody asks and nobody's in my business. We hope that you're enjoying Barbara Creed's newest book if you haven't picked it up yet. Return of the Monstrous Feminine. Go get it. We are returning and the discussion continues and we will continue bringing up Barbara Creed and her work as it applies to all the films that we cover. I hope you embody elements of the siren this year and that means to eat people yes feel generally empowered yeah that's pretty much it friendly reminder that we're also on patreon for one pound a month you gain access to our discord for three pounds a month you get to hear a cut discussion from our main episodes and for five pounds you get all that plus the opportunity to pick our themes films and discussion points please support us any contribution helps so when we picked mermaids i was like must find a film that talks about a Mamiwata. And thankfully, Mila, you sourced this one. I was really, really keen to find like a different perspective of a mermaid that wasn't that typical Hans Christian Andersen Germanic depiction. Even though our, like the lure and blew my mind of subvert this, they're still like grounded in that myth that's based on like mermaids being like subjected to men, particularly in the lure. Whereas in this film there ain't none of that she's still like a siren and in that and like she's still like a temptress seductive like in in a lot of like the lure that embodies her but i just feel like it's particularly in this film and how it locates it and plays with that lore 
it's not that same myth. It's not like that submissive, like I'll give up my voice, little mermaid depiction. We have someone who's just like actually vengeful, rageful, like we've talked about chaotic, neutral. It's about agency. It's about empowerment. And I think it's so fun. This particular, I mean, it's various countries in Africa, but this particular like African lore really is a lot of fun. Yeah. And I think that African mermaids certainly translated to Caribbean mermaids and Caribbean mermaid lore, which is what I was most familiar with. And those mermaids are baby stealers. They're known child thieves. And like that is like a big part of the lore, especially of Haitian mermaids. This is like definitely monstrous motherhood embodied because like part of some of those stories is that like they cannot have children. And that's why they steal them is they have this sad, like eternal longing to like have a child. And so it is sort of one of those like lesson stories where it's like, don't go too near to the water without your parent or your mermaid is going to take you. Sometimes they do it just to be evil and eat them um, or other reasons. Again, it's not like they're like, oh, these like sad, wistful, you know, melancholic mermaids all the time. Sometimes it's like just out of like pure evil and chaos. Sometimes they kill them. Sometimes they keep them. But sort of like the ongoing myth is that if a child goes missing, that a mermaid took them probably. I read on Wikipedia, so it might not be accurate, but it was talking about how in Haiti, La Siren is a voodoo loa who represents the Mamiwata. I'm quoting here. She's described as a strong-willed central siren who possesses the ability to drown those enticed by her. La Siren is often depicted as half fish, half human being, but is occasionally portrayed as a whale. Similar to other depictions of Mami Wata, La Siren is often shown gazing at herself in a mirror, a symbolic representation of beauty. And then this part intrigued me. She's often associated with queer relationships amongst Black women. But like a very different energy than to like a deity like Oshun, who's like also a water goddess, but like she's more about like fertility and like bounty and abundance and, you know, an Aphrodite type of character. Whereas like these are a bit more, like you said, rageful. I think it's interesting when the grandmother says like they're dangerous, unpredictable and impermanent. They are figures of survival and resistance for oppressed people. They challenge the dominant order, subverting it through chaos, anarchy, creative energy. They refuse to be ruled by the human or divine. And then Aisha asks like, I wish I knew what they want from me. And she says, you should be asking what they want for you. And I thought that was really interesting. And she says that they're, you know, they're like basically symbols of resistance. She says, some want blood, an eye for an eye. Some want you rebirth, so you persist. You can't really define good and evil. Um, how do, It's about how you use your rage and stuff. And like, yeah. And I thought that like is a good depiction. And it's also what we were talking about in the catch-up of why we like this kind of lore interpretation of a like a mermaid because it's not just about or like these kinds of gods and deities because it's not as simple as like, you know, there's no good and evil and this is that. It's like, no, there's chaos and like I like that phrase creative energy to describe it because it is creation but it also can be really destructive and I think that's really explored in this film and you're not really sure if they're like comforting because their presence is a symbol of like her extreme discomfort and it's like in that way and I think you're saying like in Hindu lore as well but it's like that kind of Vedic astrology about like how it's going to be really uncomfortable to transition you for change and stuff like that's the whole point you reminded me of what I was about to get into, into the catch up about like why this movie seems so American to me was specifically that conversation with her man's grandmother 
interpretation of these figures as like things to look up to as far as like liberating yourself from oppression that feels like a really american and caribbean interpretation like that's like the part where i think like the break between like within the diaspora is really apparent like if you're a descendant from slavery i think the like impulse to do that with any spiritual tradition it like really jumps out so like the way that black christians are like this you know the story of like you know moses freeing the slaves is applicable to us in this way it's the exact same way that like voodoo in haiti became about like you know lifting yourself out of oppression and fighting back and using the power of your ancestors to like literally kill your oppressor and i think that's true in guyana it's true in other parts of the caribbean where these myths that came from africa like are applied in like very unique ways to like the folks who like descended from slaves like the way that like that rage is channeled I can only say American because I can only say from our perspective, but like Americans I know who are like really into African spirituality, that's how it manifests. And that grandmother who like, she said she lived in Africa for 10 years or something like that. I so know who she is. Like I so know people like that, like African-American elders who like found their source of their liberation through like exploring African spirituality and what the tools that was able to give them like mentally to like withstand the oppression they were going through like back in the US. Like she was a really interesting character to me, right? Because I think like that she was not African herself was I think, especially next to Aisha and like in comparison to Aisha, their meeting and where they found commonality was like, I don't know. I'm like I'm like you're you're telling her like she's she come from the continent. You're telling her how she's like going to interpret these things. I'm sure she knows about these deities or has heard these stories. Most likely her family's Muslim, if we're being real, if they're like Senegalese. I wanted that explored, you know, like more in depth because like they showed these um, shots of Senegal, like at least at the end, do you know what I'm talking about? They had this sort of like photo montage that was like kind of crazy because the husband was a war photographer or like a disaster photographer of some kind. So I thought the inclusion of those was really, I don't know. I didn't know what to make of it. I live in New York. Senegalese people are everywhere, right? Like, I think, especially like the scenes in the braid shop or like her talking to her friend, I imagine that they were like, A, probably not speaking English. Like, there's no need to speak English in a lot of these neighborhoods and a lot of these communities. Like, they would not have been speaking English for the sake of the girl, like the American girl whose hair they're braiding. Like, certain things like that, like, this is the American lens. Like, this movie is like telling a story to Americans. And it's like, it, it's not that it's inaccurate, right? It's just, I was really aware of the positionality of like me as the American viewer. And I like, I don't know what the director intended in that sense. Like it could definitely be on purpose, but there were certain things that I felt like were like a little bit glossed over. Like the idea that, okay, she sends back cash back home. That's like a very surface level thing to know about an immigrant community or like her friend works at the braid shop. I'm like, yeah, most Americans, if they, are like involved with the Senegalese community, Black Americans who are involved with the Senegalese community or anyway, it's probably the girl who braids her hair, if we're being like real, real about it. Um, and even her conversation with Malik, where he's where he like is guessing where she's from and she's like, it starts with an S and he goes through like two countries before he gets to Senegal and she's like impressed that he knows Senegal. Like, I don't know, all those things started like compounding 
from me. And there were like certain stuff that like, that I felt were a little bit like absent from the story, especially because it's so much from her POV that we're following this particular African spiritual tradition, she very well might like be familiar with, but like this black American woman's telling her more about it than she knows. So I think like, I don't know, there were many moments like that where I was sort of like thrown off kilter, especially like we said, we're broadcasting live from New York, like literally, like it, it was super accurate to like what I as an American see of like a Senegalese woman's life in New York, but that can't be it. There has to be like more to it. But as far as like her position as a nanny and like working in in New York and like being in proximity to like white wealthy people in New York, I'm like, hell yeah, that's exactly how it feels. They treat you like dirt garbage. Like if you're just out in public, most likely they're not looking at you. And if you work for a white wealthy white person in New York, if you're black, it's like trash. If you're an immigrant, it's worse trash. Like all of that was like, true 100% true that treatment that particular like get out you know lines or like interactions Jordan Peele-esque moments I'm like that is absolutely how it happens and even the interaction between her at the park as the new nanny and then she meets these like I'm assuming they were Jamaican women the other nannies were Jamaican like they're the way that they you converse with each other is super different than how she talks to her friend she's like yeah they're all nannies and they're all black and they're all in the park and they all look after white children but they're not the same and so there were moments like that that had so much nuance that I was like yeah I'm glad to see it that is how it is like and then there were moments where I'm like I had huge questions about her and her background all that we know is that she sends money home has a kid her man ain't shit that's every immigrant story what else I completely agree. And I guess when I was saying I wanted to see the Mami Wata, I think when the grandmother was giving the explanation, it was like casting a new lens I hadn't really thought of. I knew about the creative energy and chaos, but I'd always read in Nigerian texts them more as kind of what you're saying, like trickster, whatever. I'd never heard it applied to like a symbol of resistance interpretation. And you're right, that does feel like distinctly African-American. I get a lot of questions being mixed race being here like about like african people or black people in america and i was like there's such a chasm though between like an african immigrant and then like an african-american like descended from slavery they're just very different experiences of like everything and i rarely see that i just rarely see that like i really see that nuance explored about like an african immigrant in america like being black in america and like recently from Africa you know what I mean not just descended like that's something that's not really that diasporic relation and some it's explored but not yeah it's explored but not in the same movie or if it is it's like very briefly that's what I mean so it's like it's really interesting that that encounter is depicted something I have to like grapple and try to wrap my head around because people are like oh wouldn't you know and I'm like no like I have to read about it as if like it would have been it depends where in the country you're from like if you're in New York, you're interacting with like a bunch of Caribbean folks or a bunch of like Nigerian folks. But like where I'm from in the Midwest, every African I knew was Somali. That's like a whole other like association with like African communities there than I have now in New York. I'm glad that we got like an example of a mermaid law that wasn't so much rooted in the sort of like gendered history of it wasn't as important in this film. Like I think they even corrected themselves and they said they in the film because like when we were talking about the lure and blew my mind all of what we were talking about like filtered through mermaids was very gendered 
specifically about the experience of like being socialized as a woman femininity all of that and I'm kind of glad we had like an alternative usage of that law it being like you said away from that like Hans Christian Andersen foundation of it it makes it I think a lot more complex western myths become very very distilled and like overly simplified like mermaids just like become so well known to us and because like we were talking about how christianity for example is a religion the sort of goal is to create such strict binaries that like revolve around good and evil but that will that come down to like gender roles to like uphold certain moralities like you've said Mamiwata as a law is something that doesn't ascribe to the sense of morality. It's about chaos, disruptive, and because that can be applied to so many systems of power, it just means that it, it's not like confined to gendered oppression that we've talked about now extensively. But instead, we see it here as like not just that she's like encountered this very <laughs> exploitative and manipulative white affluent family. There are so many things that happen in this film that inspire rage. We see her like have to be composed in order to keep her job because so much relies on it. Pilar Galvin for WUSF News. They said, Black horror films often subvert systems of oppression, but they also employ Western devices and narratives in films like Master, Get Out, and Candyman. The horror device is the predominantly white institution or neighborhood, which has implications on the Black character's sense of self and being. In Nanny, the white domestic space is the setting, but the tensions are manifested through African folklore. Jusu's film demonstrates that black stories don't need to be situated within a familiar white framework to be both recognizable and impactful. While films such as the upcoming live adaptation of The Little Mermaid may have cast black actors in pre-existing white narratives to be more inclusive and representative, Nanny illustrates that Black people have their own folklore. Black mermaids already exist. Jusu draws from Black history and mythology while also subverting and recontextualizing them in a contemporary setting. It is a classic New York immigrant story retold. Because although I love Get Out, of course, I like what Jordan Peele does, I did think it was nice to have a horror movie, like a Black horror movie, I should say, that is in America, but isn't necessarily using the same cultural touch points that you like the West would be familiar with, you know? And then I had another quote, actually, that I paired them together. Kalechi Anulo for Empire said that Nanny represents a refreshing direction for horror fans. What could have easily veered into Get Out territory, a film often imitated but never duplicated. Jusu's film remains incredibly restrained by avoiding the classic horror cliches Jusu's script is not interested in Amy and Adam and solving the mystery of their crumbling, elusive relationship or the couple's neglect of their daughter. Instead, Nanny is presented as sharply a focused gaze on Aisha, allowing the character to celebrate the richness of her life where Black joy and Black love are treated with valuable measure. This writer goes on to say that Anna Diop is captivating, embodying the multifaceted nuances of Black womanhood. Her attempts to maintain her cultural and spiritual connection to her home and her son demonstrate the film's poetic subtlety to explore the otherworldly without sacrificing thematic quality. This review is a little bit like saying that it's avoiding horror tropes. I don't necessarily know if it's avoiding horror tropes. I guess it does read more of a drama, but I think they do touch on something interesting in the sense that like all these horror movies that we've mentioned before that like try to do what Get Out does and just like 
end up re-traumatizing <laughs> a black viewership. It did make me think of Get Out. Like you even mentioned, like the nuance, like Zeba, you mentioned the like those encounters with like the white mom, which I, and the father, which I really do want to get into. It was refreshing to see that represented in a way that's not trying to do what Get Out did, because like this reviewer just said, a film that's often du- imitated but never duplicated, like the success of it's never duplicated, because it's like there's other ways to capture that, and I like that this kind of avoids like you combine like not a western framework not like western cultural touch points it channels the anxiety through like west african african like lore in a way that like allows us to still have a similar experience of like race oppression whatever but presents it in a different way i just admire like that perspective put on it of this situation well one thing i looked up in the meantime the director i just wanted to know she is born in the u.s i mean she might be like her parents might be african immigrants or caribbean immigrants but she's born in the u.s like it felt like an american lens but not to its detriment just that like that was the lens that it's telling um and i think that like especially like black americans who like have are like second generation immigrants have another like third place perspective that is like sort of like between the two. Um, I think that's maybe what I was picking up on in that like this doesn't feel like purely like first generation immigrant perspective. There was like something that was like a little like adjacent to it, but not inaccurate, just like next to it, parallel. So that could be, I don't know, something that contributes to it. But sort of responding to Mila's earlier point about it, like not being purely about gender or like being able to address things using the mermaid to address things beyond gender. I think that is true. And I still think it's a movie about gender. And I still think it is using the mermaid. I mean, like, we can talk about, like, feminine rage and all of that, for sure. But what I picked up on in those, like, sort of, like, passing comments, or just, like, the relationship to the white mother in general, is, like, this is a, this is a movie about motherhood. And um, we'll talk about it also when we get to the Patreon question, because I have a lot to say about that. Like this, this is a filmmaker who seems to be exploring motherhood from a lot of different perspectives. And I think like the idea that comes from like black mermaids often like stealing children or just that the relationship that like we have in the US about like black women who take care of white children is like so deeply ingrained in this country's history, like literally like back to slavery, back to wet nurses, back to like, even just like, you know, doulas and midwives and just like nannies and mammies of all kinds. Like black women have been taking care of white babies in this country for so, so, so long. And I think that exploring that relationship has been done in many ways. And it often, often lands on that these black women are also mothers themselves who have black children who are being neglected. Like that is a really prevalent thing I've seen it in movies and like shows about like the guilt that comes along with like a white child is still innocent they're still a child right like you don't want to like take out your rage onto them and you don't want to be resentful of them right because they're they are not a full-grown person yet they have not proven themselves to be like a part of the system of white supremacy just yet they will but they haven't done it yet so you can't take your rage out on them and then this relationship that white women have to the Black women or the women of color who raise their kids for them is insane. It is the most like psychologically deranged relationship that we have in this country. Like it, like the, it is a, it's obviously jealousy. There's like, they're feeling threatened by 
a child having a connection to somebody who isn't their mother. It's dominance. Like you just want to like play with this woman's life. You want to hold on to her money. You want to appear like cool, calm and collected and in charge. She's so fucking manipulative. Like when she out and out threatens her and then leaves that note that says like, thanks, you're a lifesaver. That's what working with white women is for real. It is the most like psychologically like stressful experience because they don't even understand in their subconscious that they're playing out these tropes that have existed since slavery. Like it does not even occur to them why they feel so resentful towards the black women who work for them. It's like bonkers. And I think like exploring that relationship in horror and the rage that both parties feel is like, I don't know. I just, I didn't know it could be done. And I thought it was done really, really well here, especially when we get to that horrific scene where the baby's in the bathtub and she's got the knife over her. Like something about that scene was like such a mind fuck. And I think like, I mean, we, we'll talk about the ending when we get to the ending. I think the ending is so like devastating for like multiple different reasons on multiple different levels. But I think like black motherhood, at least in this country, is always complicated by your relationship to white women. How is that fucking possible? It's always like comparing yourself to white women or it's like like not being able to be fully present for your child because white supremacy is everywhere. It doesn't matter what kind of job you have as a black person in this country, you are always under the boot of a white person. And the energy that that takes to like put up with that every day often leads to like, not just like black mothers, black fathers too, to not being able to be fully present and like the best parent that you can be to your own child. Like it's, it's like a really devastating situation. I just think like this director really hit the nail on the head as far as like, I mean, it's an intersectionality, right? Of like blackness and womanhood and blackness and motherhood. And that they were, were looking at these two mothers is what made it like a story about gender to me. Like and more, more so a story about like parenting and the role of being a mother. But like motherhood is tied to womanhood in like these very particular ways. So to me, it was like screaming about like, like this is a movie about being a white woman as well. The role that white women play. And of course, like the husband is like, I don't, I don't, I don't even need to get it to him. Like he was just such a cliche, like, dude, what the fuck? I think the most interesting and nuanced thing about him is that he was a, like a disaster photographer. And like, the conversations that came up about that. This kind of like reminded me of the conversations we were having around Megan and motherhood in general, like how it takes a village. I think like such a hallmark of white feminism is this like push from the suffragettes up until like still today, a push to get women into the workforce. And this idea that like equality comes from us, like being in an equal level to men in the capitalist system, like holding this sort of capital and power. And this film like you're right like it has such an intersectionality to it like when the white mother is complaining I mean I think she might have just got the promotion or she said she got a promotion I remember this she got promotion not a raise though but you know how it is boys club kind of shit and she as a way to like position them like as equals because they're women you're right there isn't a lack of like gender commentary it's more that it is just able to verse like across race, across class, motherhood, the fact that in order to like go to work and like ascend up the corporate ladder, 
she needs to hire a nanny and that comes at the expense of Aisha's own son like it just like marries together all these elements of like all these systems of oppression that I think is really interwoven so well together the husband I kind of agree with you Zay like what is there to say like he was just presented as like typical pig I did read a review where the reviewers saying they like how they don't try to unravel the mystery of their marriage and I don't think this film does but at the same time it does present it and like I understand even in their few exchanges that obviously this like mother is pissed because her husband's unfaithful and she's under pressure at work because she's struggling with just normal sexism but like I just liked how it presented that encounter with somebody like their employer sorry employee and how they can just be so willfully ignorant about the imbalance of that situation Again, that felt so relatable, like walking into like this rich apartment and seeing like pictures of like suffering just put up as like essentially art. And it actually kind of reminded me of the scene in Candyman, although that is a uh, the new Candyman, uh, although that is a black artist who's but there's conversations of like what counts as like black artists making money by exploiting themselves and their own trauma. But like in this way, it was making me think of that just because I was like, yeah, I mean, at this point, it's like using it as like decor as like little I just there's so many people who like have stuff from all around the world, like artifacts and stuff. And they're just there as like decor and like a talking piece, a little like texture to your home. Like that gaze of it was so exploitative. And I'm sure there's some sort of like academic theorist, like some sort of Susan Sontag like application theoretical application we could use here like suffering and art and photography but let's just not even get into all that so watching this thinking like god these people so exist like I've met these this exact couple I've met this couple (laughs) I know this couple I've met this couple several times over no I flagged this earlier where like they did this sort of like montage of photos towards the end of the movie with I don't know if it's in, in this exact moment but somebody asks Aisha like what the stakes of the situation are with her son like they don't even ask her so explicitly they're like they're just sort of like what like the grandmother says like what do you love about your country and what was hard about it or what was difficult she asks her that question instead of asking you know what did you love and then sort of at the end of the movie they show this like montage and to me like I know it had purpose I really love the rest of this movie so I want to believe that there was intent behind it that maybe I'm just not seeing but like to an audience who doesn't know why a person would want to leave Senegal, like the many, many, many nuanced reasons why people emigrate from any country, but specifically in this instance, Senegal. Showing that montage to me was a bit like shallow. It was just like a flash of like photos of like like Senegalese people. I don't know if they were real photos or, or, or staged or what, but it was like very quick and they were just like crying or like going through something. They would look like, you know, like war photos, that type of thing that the photographer would have done. But to me with no explanation, like again, a movie can only be so long. And if you wanted to make a movie about like why a person would have emigrated from Senegal, it's a whole other movie. But it felt really like breezing over the situation to me in a way that I like didn't love. Like it felt like, like, again, like having a photo up in your thing to like give to like give you a kind of like seriousness to you or an interestingness to you. It was almost like, lest we not forget what the situation on the ground in Senegal is like. And I'm like, well, if somebody watching this movie doesn't know, then this is a really weird montage to be showing because it just it's just sad Black people. Photos of Black people suffering. It was very brief, right? But like, that sort of like took away a little bit of that like characterization of the husband for me. Because I'm like, well, how is this different? 
going back to the husband, I think it was like a very smart and like concise way to characterize him um, by having him be this wall photographer who like shows off his like artistic suffering on the walls. And like, it's like one of the first conversations he has with her, he like brings up police violence. So get out situating yourself adjacent to suffering somehow makes you like I don't know absorbs you of it without recognition that you like can't experience that pain and suffering especially like war journalists war photography like there's such a strong colonialist gaze but like more than that all it is is like taking suffering into this like artistic worth that like I think western culture really really values like I think it takes away the sort of like social reality of it by creating art out of it and journalism and that sort of photography you could say it's like not supposed to be artistic it's like sort of objective and it's meant to be factual but that gets sort of like tied up in like the politics of the photographic image and I think it was just so clever to have that husband like epitomize all of it but then um, not Louisa Zaber going back to like the idea that perhaps the director sort of themselves like takes on this kind of like snapshots of just like suffering it was sort of implied that like because she was thinking about like the question that was posed to her about like why would you leave it sort of implied that like these photographs have become a part of her hallucinations like schizophrenic or otherwise that like images we haven't seen so it's like are these photographs are these things she's remembering it was just so muddled i think muddled with intention and that's where I'm going to give it grace. If we're talking about the same scene, I read it as how do you use rage, right? That was the central question that the grandmother posed her and it kind of said like she's looking at this thing, she's now she's imagining that guy in the fire background picture um, and now she's in the scene and she's hallucinating and then interspiced with her own experiences. I didn't read that as like trying to portray like her home country in a, in a particular way be that as it may, maybe I should have read into that. I was more reading of like, she's now experiencing the rage of seeing like an instance that she might have experienced be framed in that same like snapshot, like, oh, aren't I cultural? Aren't I will? Okay, yes. I like that reading much better. I want to go back to talking about, you touched on it, Zeba, motherhood, this film and grief, and bring it back to the lore. I think like one particular poignant point in this film was when, the little girl Rose tells Aisha that Lamine is like showing up at her son is showing up as a Nazi and he's like causing the hallucination and he's doing it because he's jealous of the time they're spending together and how in that moment and this is on the cinemaholic.com and that moment we see like it can be deduced that I'm quoting here Mami Wata and Anazi are manifestations of Aisha's own grief and struggles and they're more of a mirror to her rather than malevolent forces seeking destruction. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think they are kind of creative energy, destructive energy, like as deities. I do think they do become a manifestation of her guild, but also not necessarily untrue to the typical kind of trickster gods that we know in African lore. Like they are, they can be jealous. They can be like, so it didn't not make sense to me. It's like two things, two opposite things. Like her son can be sweet and endearing and then embody this like vengeful trickster energy because that's what humans are. We hold many different contrasting emotions in our space. And it kind of made sense using these these deities, these lores to like, these legends to kind of try to encapsulate that emotion and like explore grief and motherhood through that because there are so many contrasting like emotions, especially what you were saying to say about that tension between like, you know, needing to doing the job so that she can 
bring her child over and have a closer relationship but also doing the job means that she's missing facetimes with her son she's also not getting to spend direct like time with him like she's he's having to be far away like there is that kind of like guilt for having to work but if you don't work you won't be able to provide like there's so many complexities and i think like that's why these kinds of laws that are chaotic and can hold many truths at once in them is like a really interesting um metaphor I mean, obviously the ending is so devastating. Like, first of all, if that was my cousin at the airport, I'm so sorry to all the TSA agents that would have to pull me off that bitch. Are you fucking kidding me? You're just going to show up with your suitcases? Now, mind you, I'm sure she was also getting money for her visa. I'm sure she had to get money for both of their visas. And you use that money to come on over here and you like to tell me to my face? Or what is the story here? What is the situation? I'll set that aside because like that really put me in my space of rage. So maybe that's where it was supposed to be. She did not react the way I would have. She was graceful. But like, I I really struggled, not struggled with the ending in a way that like, I thought it was bad. But like in the same way we we're talking about like these, le- these stories are not necessarily to teach lessons. I interpreted it as like, especially when saying like, he's jealous of the time that you're spending with this child. Like, in the same way the cousin was kind of like, well, you took too long. To me, I interpreted that as like Mama Wati like coming and taking her son and me like, you took too long. Like I tried to tell you to use your rage. I tried to tell you to push back. I tried to tell you to stand up for yourself and you took too long. Sorry, he's mine now. And like that being like a really devastating, like it's fucked up and it's sad, but like that's how a lot of these stories end. Like how a lot of these oral stories, these folklores end and they're not clean and pretty with a bow tied on top and they don't teach you like a lesson that you can take with you beyond you know that some of them are just like really harsh and I found the ending to be like hard to sit with especially because like unlike the other mermaids she couldn't just dive into the water and become sea foam like she tried and they spit her back out I believe Mama Wati was like oh you think you're getting out of this easy you're just gonna die try again bitch pushes her back onto the dock like that's what it felt it felt like that like tough love tough lesson type of situation and at the same time I'm so sad like it's just it's just like so unfortunate but I think that's what's like why I like these stories as like I forget I think Mila said it earlier and then I repeated it of like they're not lessons they're just like sense making and I think that like to her like leaning into these stories as a like it it's not fair what happened to her is not fair what happened to her child is not fair and I think that like what's good about these stories is that there are a lens to just like make sense of chaos, to make sense of things that aren't fair, to make sense of things that like just fucking happen and are tragic and don't leave you with a pretty ending. Like I, I think in that way, the ending is very true to, to the intention of these stories and of these characters too. I think that it's really, really rare to see a film that it's either like, one or the other normally it's either the sense of injustice that comes from your position in a system of power and like the privileges like you have or you don't have and how that affects your life or it's about like a general injustice that comes from living in a world seemingly without meaning and purpose and things like really awful things happen to people that can feel like so just like unfair to that individual that family unit and I think rarely do you see a film that like addresses both and like and again I think a lot of that is like rooted in the law and like you said 
it's about building a narrative about stories and also reckoning with there being awful things that happen but kind of assigning like neutrality to them and not it being like an evil force I think some people would watch this and think it was like needlessly tragic and like why did that need to happen like I just thought back to our conversations around Get Out and like the alternative ending being um, that he's like arrested by the police officer and taken to jail and how that doesn't like it's a reality but doesn't like it can't be the only thing that's depicted like there kind of needs to be like this sort of radical reimagining of something else but I think this film like because it brings it back to some things happen outside of our control that aren't even like I guess like can't be sort of pinned back to societal structures and I just wonder if that was sort of like part of it the tragedy that all of these things led up to this thing happening to you but also that the son drowning is like obviously you could like place blame on like who is watching him but it's like a tragic accident obviously can be tied back to the fact that Aisha had to leave her son to go and try and like save money to immigrate with her son over but it's just like adding a sort of sense of like the unpredictability of life basically I just like those two elements of like injustices I think folklore touches on a lot and really like works to come to terms with it all I did was try to look at it and maybe this was a very simplistic initial reaction of like so what does that mean like she couldn't bring her son children symbolize future does that mean like there's no future for like African immigrants it was a bit difficult to like make sense of that like do you have to kill a part of her identity if that's what he's her son is symbolizing I then was trying to think of that because I was thinking the Mami Wata is like kind of saving her so Maybe like she is a more empowering figure, but if you're bringing it back to which you are like about the kind of randomness, the trickster, like the spirit's tools aren't always kind. And I think that you're right. I hadn't read it as like the Mami Wata was the thing that took her son in the first place. But then when you think about it, the whole film is foreshadowing that like we have the story the grandmother tells of like, oh, they, they tried like I had warnings, but it was too late when my daughter had her schizophrenic episode. And she feels like she betrayed her daughter by calling the police and, and like getting her locked up and whatever happened there. It's like it's implied that she was then kind of failed by the system or killed in the system. It, it does make sense. Sorry, you've made sense of it in that way. And I think like because the Mami Watsa also is like a horrific image and it pulls her down in the water. And I do think these these were warnings, right? Like, you're right. If you take too long, this is what's going to happen. But the randomness of it is that, like, you know, she tries to die herself. I hadn't looked at the Mami Watsa as vengeful. of like, oh, you think you can get out of this? But actually, maybe it is that. It's like, because it's also like destruction, like we talked about, but creative energy. So it also... In the same way, water is life-giving, but also life-taking. It then all of a sudden she finds out she's pregnant. So it's like, here you go. I'll give you, you know what I mean? It is that kind of like random, humbling, like chaotic. Yeah, like you were saying, Mila, as well, about like chaos of life and like unpredictability of it. No, I think, I think that's why those stories are most common. Those types of stories are most common among oppressed people. Because like you have to have those types of stories to like cope with not just the systemic things, but the random tragedies of life and I think the the difference between like western traditions or like spirituality is like don't worry about all this it'll get sorted out like later when you're dead like in the afterlife it, it doesn't provide tools for coping with chaos and I also think it even leads into like you know the king is powerful because God ordained it and it, it allows you to like not question things so much right and not push back as much 
like that's just not useful to living a day-to-day life especially as an oppressed person so i think that like it makes sense that you know these these stories are like useful to particular communities well overall this film um at the 2022 sundance film festival nanny won the grand jury prize in the u.s dramatic competition which made the film the first horror film and Jusu, the second black female filmmaker to ever win the top prize. And I was like, well-deserved. So we had a submission from our May Queen, which is our tier three on our Patreon. Um, head on over there if you want to have input in the kinds of topics and discussions that we have about these films. Seashell87 sent us a, a note about Nanny. I said, I just watched Nanny and I thought it was well done. Love the use of surreal dreamlike visuals and the African folklore. Looking forward to your commentary on it. Fun fact, the director made a short film called Suicide by Sunlight about a black vampire mother estranged from her children. And I thought it was really good. It's being adapted into a feature film soon for Jordan Peele's production company. It is. And I watched Suicide by Sunlight and I thought it was really interesting. It is about a black vampire and it's about how black vampires can move through the world easily. Like, as opposed to white vampires can't because they have melanin, so the sun doesn't affect them as much. And I thought that's a really fun take on the vampire myth because I think we've mentioned how like vampire myths just kind of don't really interact with race. And when they do, it's not done well. Like I think, Zeba, you famously said in Twilight, they're ashy. And I just thought this was like really fun. And I can't actually wait for that film because I think it'll be really fun. But also interesting in that, that film really deals with a lot. It's just 17 minutes. I recommend it. And it deals a lot with like black motherhood. And again, guilt because the vampire mother is estranged from her children because the father views her as a monster. And and I thought it was a really interesting film. And I thank you so much, uh, Seashells87, for recommending or highlighting that. I think that like obviously this, like Juicy seems to be really like questioning like, you know, black motherhood in america and it's really she she does it in really interesting ways as we've kind of discussed here but it's continued there and i can't wait to see it continued and monkey paw but that's super exciting i really like this i can definitely see the through line between like these movies and like the themes that they're exploring and the types of characters that are forefronted i think the vampire in this short film we see her at a very different stage in her monsterhood. Like I think in the nanny, she only gets to know her rage and be intimate with it towards the last bit. Um, But this feels like a continuation of that like character arc of like the the mother who's already considered a monster. It's more on the nose monstrous motherhood as well. Whereas this, I think, uh, sorry, in nanny, I don't think we're talking about monstrous motherhood. I don't, I don't see any of, that I mean, unless we're talking about like Mami Wata, is that's the monstrous mother here, I think, or the ocean more broadly. Whereas that's like quite literally, yes, a black motherhood who is also the monstrous mother is is put at the forefront, and that, I think that's going to be really interesting. We should definitely do it when it comes out. I love when you guys send recommendations because they're always good. Yeah, y'all are smart. <laughs> so is up. It's true. Come onto the pod. Leave us a voice note. Yeah, someone needs to send us a, our first voice note. That'd be fun. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Feminine. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud, and Spotify at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast and on Twitter at The Monfem Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and follow us on TikTok at The Monstrous Feminine Pod for podcast clips and more fun. Brooms up, which is out.